the book. How we got it, how to get the most out of it. Tonight, much like this morning, before launching right into the topic, I want to do the, the aerial view of where I think the study needs to start. And so tonight, nothing, absolutely nothing, is more important than cherishing absolute truth. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is more important than cherishing absolute truth. I want to quickly read Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there's great reward. There's a long list of questions that eventually we're going to wrap our minds around. How do we know this really is God's word? What do we mean when we say it is inspired? How do we end up with the books we have in it? Why these 66 books? Why not others? Apocryphal books, other books, why don't we include them? And how do we know that the Bible is now a closed book with no additional revelations ever to be added? People have claimed divine revelation since the completion of the scripture. Are they right? Are they wrong? What about other claims to divine authority? This is not the only sacred book. Every religion has one. Why not include the teachings of other sacred books? Are they inspired? How come we just do one? And I hope you'll be able to deal with all those issues. But there's there's one question that I think comes first. There, there's no other good starting place for this series because it stands out in the background. It's like the operating system behind all those other issues and all those other questions. And it has to do with this issue of, of absolute truth. I mean, any statements of truth, not just religious ones or biblical ones. Is there objective truth to be known? And can it be known for sure? You see, 
There's a strange thing afoot in our world. Our, our world is happy with people searching for truth. We love the quest for truth. But our world is suspicious with people once they say they have found truth. To say that this is true and everything else is false is considered arrogant. So we love the search. What we don't like are people who say they've found. Now, of course, I don't mean we can know everything there is to know, whether you're dealing with God or anything else. Total knowledge, total knowledge is impossible for beings who are, A, fallen, but even apart from that, who are finite. We can't know all there is to know about anything. But does that mean we can't know anything for certain? See, that's a different issue. Are all propositions now merely opinions? It's amazing to me when I talk to a lot of people about right and wrong and they think you're talking about chocolate or vanilla. See, that's a preference. That's the issue we need to nail down before we proceed to any of those other questions because obviously no one's going to waste time doing truth, learning truth, if there's doubt at all that real objective truth even exists. So I have three or four points that I want to go over tonight. And I'm spending most time on this one, the first point. So don't panic if it seems like, okay, you took 15 minutes there, you've got three others, like we're going to be here till midnight. No, it's not going to be like that. Point number one. By far the dominant mindset of our culture today is that absolute truth is an illusion. There are some qualifications to that. The dominant understanding of truth in our world is that outside of scientific truth, and that's... Different guys have dealt with that really well on Wednesday night, and I don't have time to do it justice, but that misnomer about scientific truth. But... That aside, apart from scientific truth, the dominant view of our culture is that we don't discover absolute objective truth. Truth that actually exists outside of our perception of it. But that we all, we create our own truth, especially moral truth. We create that inside our own value systems, inside our own heads, and then we bring that private truth to whatever we see and read or discuss and evaluate. So something is true for you, your truth, not necessarily true for me, my truth. Rather than this is true, this is true for everyone, this is true everywhere, this is true all the time. So what, Pastor Don? Like, who cares with this kind of mental web spinning? I mean, what difference does it make? Why bother with it? Let's just let people think whatever they want to think about truth. I mean, we know what we believe. What possible business is it of ours, the view of truth that people hold? 
Well, it matters a lot. It matters a lot because all ideas have consequences. All ideas. You had better pray long and hard that absolute truth exists. And you and I had better pray long and hard that people know absolute truth really exists. And I want to take a couple of minutes to tell you why. I have a lengthy quote. You've got it. May 5th, 1994, Michael Novak gave the Templeton Prize address in Westminster Abbey in London. You can read it online. It is brilliant. He said a lot of profound things, but most important for our point here is a segment that I'm lifting out of it where he talks about what he calls, this is his terminology, vulgar relativism. Vulgar relativism. You've got that in your notes, right? You can follow along as I read. Vulgar relativism, now widely ascendant, undermines the culture of liberty. If it triumphs, this is me, and now it certainly has, free institutions may not survive the 21st century. That's the century we're in. To obey the truth is to be free. And in certain extremities, nothing is more clear to the tormented mind. Nothing more vital to the survival of self-respect. Nothing so important to one's sense of remaining a worthy human being. Of being no one's cog. Part of no one's machine. A resistor to death against the kingdom of lies. In fidelity to truth... ...lies human dignity. Many sophisticated people love to say they are cynical. That ours is a cynical age. This is brilliant, by the way. They flatter themselves. They do not believe nothing. They believe anything. Ours is no longer an age of unbelief. It is an age of gullibility. That's brilliant. One principle that today's intellectuals most passionately disseminate is vulgar relativism. For them, it is certain that there is no truth. Only opinion. My opinion, your opinion. Nothing is left but preference. Vulgar relativism is an invisible gas. Odorless. Deadly. That is now polluting every free society on earth. It is a gas that attacks the central nervous system of moral striving. The most perilous threat to the free society today, therefore, is neither political or economic. It is the poisonous, corrupting culture of relativism. Listen to this. During the next hundred years, the question for those who love liberty is whether we can survive the most insidious and duplicitous attacks from within, from those who undermine the virtues of our people, doing in advance the work of the father of lies. There is no such thing as truth, they teach even the little ones. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There are as many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. 
do what feels comfortable. Those who speak in this way prepare the jails of the 21st century. They do the work of tyrants. Oh, gee. Just frame that somewhere. Remember where we are. I'm wanting to stress that there are consequences to the idea that absolute truth doesn't exist. That each person creates his or her own truth. That's where we are. There are consequences to relativism. And I could never have said it, but I want to land right now on Michael Novak's last sentence. Those who speak this way, there is no such thing as absolute truth, prepare the jails of the 21st century. They do the work of tyrants. And I want everyone in this room, whatever you don't get tonight, I want everyone in this sanctuary to understand that Novak isn't just being poetic or dramatic or writing a great speech when he uses that word tyrant. They do the work of tyrants. There is a brilliant reason that word was carefully chosen. And it was chosen because it gives the most accurate picture of what always happens when truth becomes relative. Why is it that relativists, if you're in high school, university, college, the odds are 90% you're being taught by a relativist. Why is it that relativists prepare the jails of the 21st century? And here's why. Because whenever two people disagree about anything important, they have to have some absolute standard to which they can make appeal. If I want to choose one way, and you want to choose the opposite. So if there's a real vital struggle of opposing wills, and there's no absolute truth, no absolute right or wrong to carry the day, then there's only one arbiter left. If it won't be truth, it will be power. It will be might. That's why he used that word they do the work of tyrants. If truth doesn't decide, power will. There's simply no other way to go for fallen people. And so what Michael Novak means is when someone tells you your religious beliefs are unacceptable because they are too exclusive, and when you say you must... They say you must renounce those beliefs or be thrown into jails. And you object and say, no, you, you can't do that just because I don't agree with same-sex marriage. You can't put me in jail. You can't take away my rights. That's not right. My beliefs are true. And they are going to say your beliefs don't matter because my sword is bigger than your truth. You get it? They do the work of tyrants. They prepare the jails of the 21st century, literally, not figuratively. They start wars. 
Who's to say what you're doing is right and what I'm doing is wrong? So, listen, church. It's no coincidence. It is no coincidence that with the rise of relativism, the last century, the one we just concluded, the 20th, was by far the bloodiest century in human history. We had all better pray the relativists don't continue to carry the day because they are truly preparing the jails of the 21st century. Don't, don't play the truth games with your professors in the classroom because the games don't end in the classroom. It's not mental gymnastics. They prepare the jails of the 21st century. Don't play the games with the professors in college. They prepare the jails of the 21st century. Pray and think and read and struggle and proclaim the centrality and the godliness of absolute truth and never ever let it go. I'm not done yet, but everyone said, I took a lot of time with that first point. Remember, I said, don't panic. Point number two. As the culture tilts toward relativism, the church is going to find absolute truth a much harder sell. The result of this is that as the church becomes more and more aware that its audience is morphing toward relativism, the church is increasingly inclined to change its product to attract buyers into her message. In other words, relativism in truth breeds consumerism in religion. You need people's in the you need you need people in the pews if church is going to go. As the desires of self, the inclinations of the heart, as those things, doesn't happen immediately, gradually squeeze out the revealed message driven and shaped by absolute truth, then something has, to, something has to give. And the love of external success will almost always place the consumer in the driver's seat of religion. And the message starts to change. I told my class this morning, one of the great benefits of taking a book like Hebrews and going right through the book is you, you, you force, and I include myself, you force the whole body of Christ to take the revealed truth line by line as it's given rather than picking passages that make for comfortable preaching. And so you're forced to look at passages that nobody wants to read. But you keep the concept of absolute truth in front of the body of Christ. It can't be anything but good for the church. This has always been the case. You can look at John 5, 42 to 44. Jesus is speaking and he says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another 
and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Question. How does Jesus know these people don't have the love of God in them? Does he know that because, well, he's God, he's omniscient, he knows their thoughts? Maybe, but I don't think that's the way he knows it. Because the next verse tells us that he knew they didn't have the love of God in them by something he and anyone else could observe. So it wasn't some supernatural mind reading that led Jesus to say this. Verse 43 is the money verse. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his name, I'm watching this, Jesus says. I see other leaders coming around and they say what, they say what you want to hear and you receive them. So this isn't some supernatural discernment. This is simple observation. Jesus says, if that's the way you work, if it's not geared to my truth, but what you want to hear, well, you can't believe. What does that little verse mean? It means there are certain religious leaders that these people will admire. They'll buy into their truth. They will like what they have to say. And the reason is they will embrace them because these prophets and these leaders come in their own name. They come with a message full of themselves. And these hearers will welcome these leaders because they too are full of themselves. They make themselves the measurers of the message. They put their values and their opinions and their desires at the center of the message. And as long as the coming leaders are working from the same center as themselves, Jesus says people will embrace them. And then Jesus says, but I don't, I don't come on those terms. I just come telling you the truth. The truth about who I am. The truth about your sin. The truth about the need of repentance. The truth about the wrath of God. The truth about eternity. I just come revealing truth. You're not interested in truth. So there's nothing man-centered or self-centered in anything Jesus brings to the table. And the people won't embrace that kind of truth. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Paul talked to the church, 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 4. He writes to this young pastor. This is really interesting. This is Paul as a pretty old man. And he's writing to Timothy because Timothy has a pretty big church and quite a bit of responsibility and not a lot of experience. And Paul writes to him, 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 4. And Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Stop there. When someone says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead and the appearing of his kingdom, I don't know of any other charge like that in the scriptures. Like it seems to me when Paul, when Paul brings all of this to Timothy's face... What comes next has to be pretty important, right? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Rebuke. And notice how he starts with the negatives. You have to do that first. And exhort. With complete patience and teaching. See, reprove. 
and rebuke, especially those, those make no sense if there's no absolute truth. If all you have is your opinion and I have mine, me to rebuke you makes no sense whatsoever. Who am I to do that? And then he says, this is after I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. He says, the time is coming. If Paul saw it coming then, think of what he'd say now. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Endure. They won't endure it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves. Accumulate like you buy things and own them. Have. Accumulate. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Jesus, when he said that you receive glory from others and you, you, won't, you won't honor me, he wasn't, he wasn't on that page. Myths. Itching ears. He still isn't. Jesus, and I mean the real Jesus of the New Testament, not the man-made Jesus of many crowds, he doesn't market well in a relativistic age. You, you can crucify him, but you can't modify him. Okay, last point. Last point, we're almost done. So we're going to be looking at the book. The value of God's word lies precisely in its truthfulness, not its ease or adaptability. I think more and more pastors need to get up and say, you know, this isn't Sesame Street. I'm not Big Bird. This isn't supposed to be fun. We're supposed to think and learn real truth. And here's what you discover. Remember that text I opened with from Psalm 19? When you get to the end, so the last part of verse 9, and then 10 and 11, he says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Having described God's law, he says it was perfect. Here are these adjectives. Sure, right, pure, clean. He uses all those words. But it's when, it's when he launches into describing it as true. That's when he says it's precious like gold. It's when he talks about its truthfulness that he says it's sweeter than honey. Here is something, so here is something special indeed about God's word. God's rules don't vary. They won't mix in with all the other delusions and deceits of our selfish minds. God's laws apply to all cultures equally because they adapt to no culture particularly. God's truth is truly undiscriminating in the deepest sense. They are true everywhere, all the time, for all peoples. So God's laws provide the only safe standard against fads 
and deceptions that make up what David in Psalm 1 calls the counsel of the ungodly and what our media calls people of faith, whatever you happen to believe. It's the process that counts, not the object of your faith, just people of faith. Here is something external to our own changing opinions. Here's something bigger than our feelings. Here's something you can anchor your whole life to. But if the laws are ultimately sweet like honey, they are also costly like gold. You dig. I wanted to wrap this up. Covered a lot of turf. Um, but I wanted to wrap it up real close to our hearts. I want to ask you if you're studying God's word every day. You can go on our website. Bible reading program. Go under links. It's under links. When you click on links, it's down there. And there's a read the Bible through in a year. Get right through it. Get right through it. Do you work to hide it in your heart? The psalmist's assessment is my love for God's word is too slight if it comes in second to my passion for gold, material wealth. If you care more about being rich than being biblically literate, then you don't love God's word enough. If you care more about your investments than you care about knowing what's in the book of John or Proverbs, then you don't love God's word enough. Day's going to come. No one knows when, but more quickly than any of us imagine. The day is going to come when everything else will be stripped away from your life. Through old age or sickness, your trip to the hospital is coming. Unless you die in your sleep, think about it. Unless you die in your sleep, your trip to the hospital is coming. Everything will be stripped away from you. Perhaps even persecution will come that we can't even imagine right now. And all you will have in those times is the word you have hidden in your heart. It's going to get increasingly hard to do this for the body of Christ. Not only will time constraints of all sorts put pressure on us. Isn't it pathetic? I, I, just, I just get sick when I hear this phrase about binge-watching TV programs, I'm thinking, good night. Why aren't God's people binging on the Bible? Like, instead of binging on some stupid TV series, binge one night and read the whole New Testament through. It can be done, by the way. Binge wisely. The climate of our culture is going to become increasingly hostile to word-saturated disciples. We will be mocked as prudes, persecuted as intolerant. No, gold doesn't come cheap. But just let it all roll by. Keep the word alive in your mind, in your memory, in your heart. Obey it till your last breath. Remember... 
keeping God's law, the psalmist says, there's great reward. Let's pray.